This is the Icon Podcast, a community of trained readers reflecting Jesus with Michael Burns and Jason Alexander. I'm your host, Gianna Hearn, and today will just be the good old Michael Burns and Gianna show as Jason is out for the day. We're going to continue talking about our new new topic right now, which is the book of Revelation. So we're super excited to get into it. We introduced a little bit last episode. We're going to do a little bit more of an introduction and go over some stuff uh, a little bit more in detail, but we're excited to get this going. Michael, it's just me and you today. Dynamic duo. Yes. Here at our best. We will soldier on through the tears <laughs> of missing Jason and, and muddle along doing the best that we can. Yes, I will not be the spiritual guidance. Uh, I'm not filling the role of Jason today. If you guys listened to our last episode, you know uh, which what roles we're filling here. I'm just going to be good old Gianna, and Michael will do his his best to keep up with me, you know? Yes, the history nerd <laughs> is in the house, but we are we will we will carry on without our, our spiritual guide. Before we get there, though, I think... You were telling me before we started this that you had a supernatural what experience? Okay. Uh, what, what was it? So I did have a supernatural experience. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you. I'm in my office and, you know, it's summer. So we get flies in the house occasionally. They come in, the boys leave the doors open. Pretty natural. You know, the dog, our dog busts the back door open when she's outside all the time <laughs> and flies come in. So I'm in my office and this fly is on the window and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to kill this fly. You know, I take a rolled up uh, thing of paper that's stapled together. It's like 10 sheets of paper. It's pretty solid. I fold it in half. I hit this fly square on and it just stares at me and does (laughs) nothing. So I hit this fly again and it starts to fly away and I whack it again back up against the window this thing took 10 shots. It just kept coming off the window. And I would whack it onto the window. And it was taking shots like John Wick. It, it, it was, was the queen fly. I don't know if there's like a queen unbelievable. <laughs> I've killed a lot of flies. I've never seen a fly like that. But wait for it. So then I finally hit it like the 10th or 11th or maybe even 12th time square on. Finally, the thing drops onto the windowsill. And I'm like, okay, it's dead. So I go and grab a piece of tissue and I pick it up to go throw it away. And I'm walking into my kitchen and I look in this tissue and the thing is in there and I fold, you know, kind of crumbled it back up, threw it in the garbage, walked back into my office and there was a fly in the exact same area of the window sitting there staring at me. And I was like, what the heck? Did this thing just come back from the dead? So I grabbed the rolled up paper. I hit this thing again. It only took one shot this time. Square on, killed it, grabbed it, went and threw it in the, uh, this time instead of going in the kitchen, I went into the bathroom, threw it in the toilet, flushed it. But then I walked into the into the kitchen, opened up the original tissue and there was no fly in there. I'm telling you, this thing came this can't back be true. from the dead. This can't be true, Michael. Are you I'm sure telling you, you did all those steps that you're telling us? Yes, painstakingly. <laughs> I, it seems like you were like Rocky Balboa. You went 12 rounds and you lost. No, I won. 
But I mean, I was, it was like the ring. This thing kept coming back over and over. I would say again. it's a draw because if I'm counting and I'm tallying up points here, it seems like the fly had a lot more points than you. I mean, it didn't. But you hit, knocked him out, you're saying. Yeah, he didn't hit me once. But I'm just saying, <laughs> I raise my right hand and say, all those things happened. It, like, I don't know. I may have just witnessed a fly resurrection. But then I went ahead and killed it again. Flies are different in Texas. That's what I'm hearing. It could Must be. be something in the water. I don't know what what that was, <laughs> but I was like, yo, that thing just came back from the dead. It's it's well, like it's like the fly like Jason Voorhees. I don't okay, That's look, what Jason it is. Alexander's not on here, so your references are t- over my head. I, I'm not sure who that is. Jason, it's uh, Jason is Friday the 13th. Jason. Oh, yeah. See, I don't watch scary movies, so that's why that one didn't work for me. But. I'm feeling like probably right now in my bathroom, there's a fly crawling out of my toilet. <laughs> I'm going to be scared for you if all these flies are resurrecting in your house. I don't know what it means, but uh, it means I'm not visiting. <laughs> it, but, um, yeah, Can, let's move yeah, on. Let's move on to um, talking about uh, the man who resurrected. He's showing up a little bit here in Revelation, I would think. Yes. Um, do you like that segue? I don't know if it worked. No, but that was smooth. That was smooth. We we are moving on to continuing our talk about Revelation, understanding it, reading it responsibly. That's a nod to uh, one of those books, if you listened last time, that Michael said would be a good one to check out if you're going to follow along with us or just want to know more. Um. But Michael, kind of sum up a little bit of what we talked about last episode and what's our focus today. So I'll answer the second part of that question first. We're going to, we're largely going to talk about imagination today. And and we are going to talk about Jesus in, in Revelation and the confrontation that is really at the heart of Revelation. And we're going to continue to talk about themes. That's one of the things we're, we're not going to do as much of is go through Revelation verse by verse, because I don't think that's the most helpful way to introduce us to Revelation. I think there's so much background and so many themes and bigger picture things that we've got to grasp and are helpful before we start, you know, digging into details uh, and, and we'll talk about more about that today. But I do want to review a little bit from last time just to help locate us each episode. I think that's helpful. And we talked last time, there's a phrase that comes from Michael Gorman, who wrote the book you mentioned, Reading Revelation Responsibly. And he refers to Revelation as a hybrid document in that there really are three types of genres mixing in Revelation, Uh, one of them being dominant, but the other two, uh, you know, helping to direct us in what type of uh, how we how we approach Revelation, what type of, of way we should be reading it. And so let me ask you, Gianna, if you remember those three genre types. Hmm. <laughs> uh, let's see. Was there 
I, and this could be totally off. Literal is not a type. I know we talked nope. about literal versus literarily, so that's not a type. But I know they're okay. So let's see, prophetic is that one? That's one. There you go. Oh, I got one. Okay. Um, and the other two, let's see. Uh, I'm gonna guess like a myth. No, nope. <laughs> I don't nope. know, Michael. Although we will talk about here. myths today. Okay, so the first one, G is where we get the word revelation from. But makes in sense. Greek, yep. it's it's apocalypse or okay. apocalypsis, right? Thank you. Mm-hmm. So the, the genre of literature is apocalyptic. Let Got me it. just review that a little bit. Uh, apocalyptic is not a type of literature that is in use today. We just, uh, we just don't have it. And it's... It's not merely symbolic or metaphorical, although it is that, but it, it served a very specific purpose. It, rather than an apocalypse being like, oh, I'm going to give some vision of what's going to happen in the future, which is how we tend to read Revelation, apocalyptic works were more like, let me decode for you what is really going on right now. You think life is just normal and it's just the way it is. And you go about your business and you interact in the economic sphere that you're in. And you're, you know, you're part of the Roman empire in the first century and you just normal people doing normal type life, which was uh, different in some ways, but life in Roman in the Roman empire was a lot more similar to life in America than, than we might even realize in many Interesting. ways. And so what apocalypse would do is pull back the curtain on that and go, you know, you're being lulled into a, a dream world to think that this is just a certain thing, but it's actually, if you could see it from a spiritual perspective, it's, it's more sinister. It's bigger. There's there's a conflict going on. And I'm going to, the, the apocalyptic document is going to interpret that for us. And it's often the language of people who are in exile or being oppressed in the ancient world. Like, hey, you know, this is this is what's really going on. But there's also hope in this. Because we're not just stuck in this situation. We're not just going to be the oppressed underdog forever. There's there's actually a spiritual battle going on that gives us a different view of things. Uh, almost like you have that scene in the Old Testament with uh, Elisha, I believe, and his servant. And he's like, we're done for, you know, we're surrounded by the enemy and Elijah's like, no, dude, open your eyes up. Uh, there's, you know, and then he's able to see like all these angels surrounding them. Mm-hmm. That's all, that's almost a, a real world picture of what apocalypse does. Got and it. so we've got to remember that because we're so trained. Uh, we talked about this last week, I think. We even hear the word apocalypse. I caught myself doing this today. I was like, oh, man, it's the apocalypse, meaning it's the end of the world. Mm-hmm. And so we've kind of, that's what that word means to us in English. And now the book of Revelation is automatically about the end of the world. That's the right. way we yeah. approach it. 
but it's but it's not that's that's not what it is but we're so trained we'll talk more about that in a minute but apocalyptic was a familiar type of literature in the first century you have apocalyptic passages in the old testament you have isaiah parts of jeremiah parts of ezekiel joel zechariah daniel 7 through 12 is apocalyptic it, it and a lot of the language of revelation comes from those books it it sort of uh, remixes that language we're going to have jason talk about that when he comes back about uh, sampling, you know, the way like rappers will sample a beat <laughs> and make something new out of it, but it still yeah. sounds like the old thing. Uh, you have a lot of that going on, but there are many, there are dozens and dozens of works from around the time of the, uh, the Babylonian exile into the first and even second century. You have works of apocalyptic to name just a few. You have the Book of Enoch, the Apocalypse of Abraham, uh, the Book of Baruch, Gabriel's Revelation, uh, the Apocalypse of Goliath, the Apocalypse of Peter, and Matthew twenty-four is is very apocalyptic in its language, and and many other works. So that's apocalypse. Then the second type of literature that I want to review. You nailed it, G, is prophetic. I got one. You got one out of three. <laughs> hey, one out of three in baseball makes you a Hall of Famer. So I'll you know. take it. Yeah. Um, pro- prophetic works were a combination of comfort and confrontation. That's what they did. And again, there's another term where we hear prophecy or prophet or prophetic, and we think telling the future. But that was not the primary role of prophecy. It was uh, to be God's mouthpiece, to speak the truth to God's people, to call them back to covenant faithfulness, or maybe promise a time when covenant faithfulness would occur uh, through whatever means. And so it would warn them of the things that would happen if they did not repent, for instance. Uh, But it it wasn't primarily like, oh, I'm just going to tell the future so you can be wowed and know what's coming. And prophecy was not unavoidable. Uh, it, It was a call to repentance. So think of, gee, you're familiar with the book of Jonah, right? Mm-hmm. So Jonah is called by God to go speak to the Ninevites, to challenge them, to speak God's judgment on them. And he tells them, if you don't repent, you, this city will be destroyed. This is what will happen. But what happens in the book? They do repent, right? And so God doesn't destroy the city. That's not a failed prophecy. So it's like an if-then statement. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. It's, I'm calling you to change. I'm calling you to be this. If you don't, this is what the consequences of, of that will be. And oftentimes it's not even God saying, I'm going to do this to you. It's more, I'm going to allow this to happen, or these are the consequences of that behavior. You know, if you exactly. see- a child and they're they're playing around a beehive and you go hey leave that alone 
because if you keep messing around over there, you're going to get stung. That's prophetic, but it's not telling the future, right? Mm -hmm. There's a difference there. And so if they keep playing with that, they get stung. You didn't sting them, but you told them it was going to happen and they, they didn't listen. If they do listen and they walk away right away, they don't get stung. Doesn't mean you were wrong. In fact, you were still very right, but they listened. So that that's in in a in very simple terms. Yeah, it would make me question like, what's the difference between prophecy and wisdom? Then at that point, and I guess in my mind, then it's it's God speaking through that person, and maybe wisdom. We don't. That's not God necessarily. But anyways, that's a whole other thing. But in my brain, I was thinking. Oh, that sounds like us just being wise or not sure. being wise. Well, I think a, a prophetic wise. message carries wisdom in it, you know. And so I, I dare say all prophecy has wisdom or is wisdom, but not all wisdom is prophecy. Yes, yes. okay. That's right? where I was going. Mm-hmm. And then the third type we have is a letter or an epistle. And should have got that one. That, that was that kind sense. of an easy one, G, but you know, you I get it. You put me on the spot. I was sweating. I didn't know what to say. I, did, I didn't know where I you're know. going with it. And I don't, you know, <laughs> I, you are a saint because we don't let you know what we're talking about. We just throw it all at you. And we do that intentionally, right? Because we Yeah, wanna, the listeners like to hear that, you know. Yeah, we want to see you react. <laughs> that's that's kind of what it is. So this is like a hidden camera show, but let's see what G does. <laughs> so yeah, the the letter though, I'll just say shows us that this was th- these were letters that were written to real people, real churches, real events. And when we combine that with apocalyptic, which is interpreting the current times and a prophecy, which is a, a warning to the current people, it just adds up that that revelation is something that was written for the churches, for the followers of Jesus in the first century. It wasn't something like, hey, you're being, you're having a really tough time now. You're struggling with the Roman Empire. You're maybe some of you are being persecuted, but hold on, because in a couple thousand years, Jesus is going to come back and win. That that doesn't really challenge my behavior. That doesn't really comfort me. It doesn't confront me. It doesn't do any of the things that these genres tell us that this type of literature would do. So that doesn't answer all our questions, but that starts to lead us in the direction of how we should read Revelation. Does that make sense? Yeah, because if you're just starting off reading Revelation and you don't know about the three types of literature, I feel like it'd be really hard to understand um, what's going on here. So I think it gives you the lens at which you should look at it through. I mean, even when you just said that, I was looking at part of what we read last time, but it says to the seven churches in the province of Asia. And in my mind, since I've not really read Revelation, I was like, when I first read that, I was like, so why are we... Why have I heard Revelation taken as this apocalypse, like the world is ending and like it's starting out here saying like it's to these specific churches. I don't know if that makes sense to you what I'm saying, but uh, it's interesting. I've heard people talk about it and now just reading this first sentence, it seems very direct to a certain people group at a certain time about whatever. So, you know, I'll be interested to see how we continue to go through it and um, yeah, understand why it was written, who it was written to, what should we take out of it now? 
Yeah. No, that's a great, great observation. And we're, we're not going to get fully into this today, but I'll, I'll, I will say this right now. Part of why I think we can easily go down the wrong roads in Revelation or start to read it irresponsibly it is actually understandable to a degree. And what I mean is this. Imagine, you know, down the road, say 2,000 years from now, somebody finds a written document from our culture and it says, you know, last night Air Jordan was flying down the court and jammed all over these guys. Yeah. Or, you know, or jammed all over the the Celtics. And and so 2000 years from now, a different culture who doesn't know the NBA, doesn't know those things, finds that and goes, "Who was this Air Jordan? How is it that he could fly?" Did people have the ability to fly back then? Mm-hmm. Or did these, these darkened, unenlightened cultures just believe that certain people could fly? And mm-hmm. what was he dunking? What does that mean? What's and a who, Celtic? Who were these Celtics? Our study of history shows that, you know, the true Celtic tribes lived thousands of years, hundreds of years before this time period. So that seems anachronistic. This is, there's all kinds of errors in here. But we know all the metaphoric language of that. We know right away who that is, what it's about. We know the clues. And so that's the key with apocalypse is we don't know the clues and the language and the culture and the metaphors. And so when we see things like the stars will fall from the sky. That's a common metaphor in the ancient world for political upheaval. But we start to think, well, that's mm. end of the world language, <laughs> right? We're that, waiting for stars to fall to the sky. That's a sign. Yeah. You know, we, we think that's, that's end of the world. And so that's where our imaginations go. And we, we start to get in the wrong direction. So this, this is part of, again, why we're not going to dive into Revelation verse by verse, but we're going to look at language and themes and, and big movements to try to maybe get us in the right direction and prepare us so that we can uh, do a, a study down the road. But before we jump in, G, I want to ask you a question. I don't know. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. <laughs> I think so. No, it's not a hard question uh, because it, it's- or so it's, we think. No, it's a question in which you are an expert because it's a question about you. Oh, good. Yeah. I mean, I hope I know. (laughs) So you said last time, and I and I I love that you said this, and I appreciate your uh, straightforwardness in the fact that you were like, I don't think I've ever really read all of Revelation. I haven't. Not even close. (laughs) And I'm I'm. Surprised by, as I've talked to people, how many people actually tell me that. And I think a lot of probably older Christians are like, oh, what's a, we should all have read through the Bible all the way. But a lot of younger people just haven't read Revelation. So here's my question. 
Why not? What has kept you, you think, from reading Revelation? Well, like I kind of mentioned in the last episode, I just think I've heard a lot of things about it. And I guess to be honest, I just didn't want to read it from the lens of me not knowing it like how to interpret it because I've heard a lot of people like have gotten it wrong or it scared them or they're living their lives in a certain way. And I just felt like I wasn't at the point yet where I could probably understand it and also be able to share that with other people, you know? So I felt so far in my faith journey, the last five years, really dedicating my life to God and following Jesus's ways that that's what I was focusing on was Jesus himself trying to live my life and do the best I could. So, you know, if, if he happened to come back in those five years, well, I figure I'll be okay. So, you know, God's got it handled. So I just wasn't too concerned. And then I think I finally got to the point where I was like, does it really matter if I read Revelation? Like if I know everything I know about God at this point, and I know everything I know about Jesus at this point, would Revelation scare me off? No, because I've already made my my decision and w- what I believe. So I think to me, it's, it got to a point where I was like, eh, I'm not sure it's that important. Like, yeah, <laughs> sure. it's in the Bible, so I'm sure it's important. But to what end? Because all I heard from other people was that it was more that apocalyptic, like you should know when the last day is, or you should know if it's coming, be prepared. I'm like, I already feel like the way I live my life, I'm prepared for whatever's going to yeah. happen. So I, yeah, I just didn't feel like putting effort into that at that point, but I'm still very, very curious because I know there has to be so much in it in a book that's that misunderstood. There has to be just a lot there. So to yeah. answer your question, I didn't go after it because I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't really have people in my life that I felt like really understood the book. Um, obviously, my husband has spent some time diving into it, and so he's given me some pointers. And obviously, I definitely trust what he's learned about it, but we're both you know, still learning a lot. So I, d- I don't feel like I had the resources. I wasn't in the right life space, and, and now I'm curious and ready. I think that's a really good answer. That's all fair. And I think there's a great deal of wisdom in that, in that, wow, this is a difficult book to handle. I don't feel necessarily prepared to do it. Maybe I don't have the people around me to do it. I'll just wait on God's timing in a sense. (laughs) And uh, gosh, uh, again, to reiterate, I don't have all the answers to Revelation. There's a lot of things I I don't know, don't understand. I think I have a decent grasp on it at this point, but th- there are some folks who have become almost obsessed with the book and should yeah. probably have it taken away from them for a little I, while I, because they're in the wrong direction. I think I had a lot more questions when COVID happened and when George Floyd happened and sure. when it just felt like there was so much chaos in the country, like back-to-back weeks, that I was like, okay, lots of people are spewing, you know, these are the end times. These are the end times. I'm like, should I know? Are these the end times? Am I missed? Like what's going on? So I had more questions arise during uh, those chaotic years. I mean, we're, we're still living in life and there's, there's a lot of chaos in the world in general, but it was during that time that it was just felt so heavy that I was like, Hmm, is there any, uh, like real truth to like paying attention to these signs and things like that? Yes. Makes perfect sense. And in fact, um, that's, that's, that's so good. Cause even, even that phrase, like, uh, you know, the, the 
end times or the end of the times or, you know, whatever, is we, we automatically hear that and assume that means the end of the world. Uh, but if we really look into the New Testament, the way it was used that's not what it was. It it was it was referring to the time where the present age, I'm sorry, the age to come had broken into the present age. So from the time of the resurrection up until today is the end times. It's it's not like this end mark moment. And so <laughs> even there, it, we can get misled by language that we we think is clear and obvious, but we are not reading a book that was written to us. And it's it's pretty arrogant or irresponsible when we do that without putting in the effort to go, man, what did this mean in its original context? You know, then I feel like there's people that push back and have people have asked me this before when we study, but if we're reading something that wasn't written to us, why should we pay attention to this book? Sure. But that's a great question because it was written for us, not to us. Mm, right? And that's so, an interesting 10 times this episode. Yeah. Think of, <laughs> think of how many times you have, you know, maybe you've watched a conversation between two people that was not involving you, that was not for you, but you've seen wisdom pass from one person to the other, and you go, okay, that's good wisdom. Now, my life situation is not exactly the same as that person's, but I can take that wisdom, understand in context and how it's being used, and then apply it to my situation. So that's that's what we're doing, right, is okay. we're, we're reading how this directed. And so in the first century, you have a group of Christians who are living in complex political times. There is a strong superpower that they are living in that has uh, made rather bold claims. It is it has taken a very strong position in the world and said, we can fight off all the things that you fear. We can give you <laughs> peace and comfort and security and prosperity if you give your allegiance and trust, pledge your allegiance to us, trust in us, give your loyalty to us, believe in our dreams, believe in our way of thinking, and we will provide for you. In fact, if you accept our way of life, you can become one of us. Don't just come live live with us, but you've got to really accept our dream and vision of the world. And so it seemed very good, but it was fundamentally, although it seemed good and claimed to be good, it was fundamentally opposed to the way God wanted his people to view the world and operate in the world. But there was this strong pull for the people to assimilate, to accept it, to uh, say, you know what, we'll, we'll do both. We'll be God's people and we'll accept this view of the world, right? Yeah. And so Revelation steps in and says, look, some of you are standing up to this and you're being persecuted and good for you, but hold on, let me give you some hope. But some of the folks were accepting it 
or others were tempted to accept it. And it's speaking to them and challenging those groups and saying, okay, let's confront you here with you need to stand up for the way of the Lamb, the way of Christ. And when you do, you will be persecuted, but let us pull the veil back and show you what's really going on and who's really in charge here and who's really victorious. Uh, that's an interesting word. We're going to have like, I think a whole episode maybe on that word victorious because it's so fundamentally key to what's Hmm. going on in revelation. Uh, but we'll get to that, but it's, so it's about imagination. Let me shift just a little bit here and, and, but keep talking about this in that revelation is a book of imagination, right? And you think about it. And, and and I mean that in so many ways. It sparks the imagination, doesn't it? I mean, you, mm-hmm. you start reading it and there are, oh my goodness, <laughs> there are dragons and beasts and, you know, creatures and all A lot these. of imagery to come up with in your brain here. Oh, it's unbelievable. It is a book of imagination. It's designed that way. It's designed to appeal, to ignite, and ultimately retrain the imagination. And that's really important because we're often limited by what we can imagine, mm. right? We're limited yeah. by what we imagine there is or, or could be. Yep. Uh, I've, you've probably seen that many times with athletes where they sell themselves short because they're like, oh, I can't imagine myself playing at the next level. Yeah. But they could. They just they limit themselves. <laughs> I've noticed when people exercise. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, G. You look at a weight and you're like, oh, I can't lift it. Can't yeah. even do it. So you yep. don't try. Or even just a workout or like seeing someone plank. You're like, yeah, that, that's, I can't do that. Right. But then you, <laughs> you try it and you're like, oh, wait, I could do this. Mm-hmm. I, just didn't, I just didn't realize, right? Yeah. And so we, we limit ourselves by what we can imagine. And our imaginations are trained every day by the culture around us. And often that's poor source. It's a poor source of information. Mm. But it, it fuels us. It animates us. So I go, I go to this particular gym. And every day there's this older guy there. He's, he's a wonderful guy. Cool dude. He's very nice to everybody in the gym. But he cracks me up because every day he'll he'll come over. He comes in about halfway through our workout. And he'll, he'll come into the gym and he'll beeline over to us. And he'll just, it, you know, a lot of days his face is red and he's like, let me tell you, now they're trying to ban pizza ovens and <laughs> wood-burning ovens and these politicians are out of control. Every day it's some new rant that yeah. he's a political rant. And I joked around with him the other day. I said, you know what I think you do? I think you watch like a certain news channel every morning and you get all worked up about stuff. And then you come <laughs> here and burn off all your frustration. And he's like, that's exactly what I do. The world's <laughs> going to hell in a handbasket, you know, that kind yeah, of thing. Yep, yep. But see, his imagination is being trained every day by this particular news source whose mm-hmm. model is fear-mongering, 
It is whipping people up into anger so that you're you're frustrated, you're angry, you're fearful, and you're going to come back and watch us tomorrow to get the next you know fix. Yeah, the next hit exactly (laughs) on what's going on. Yeah, and that's a trained imagination. And so John is writing a work of imagination to retrain our imaginations, which I think is so brilliant because stories like this or these works of imagination really help people rethink their situation in in a way that, you know, just straight prose could never do. Uh, it, it It's different. And, you know, we can talk more about that in, in a minute, but let me, um, there's a couple more things I want to say here about imagination. Because Revelation is apocalypse, and we know that apocalypse is dealt with symbols. Everything's a symbol in apocalypse. Every number Every color, every image is symbolic. And that's one of the ways that people read Revelation incorrectly is they will take something as woodenly literal one moment, but then the next moment, it's not literal. Mm-hmm. You know, and so, well, this is actually going to happen, but I don't literally think Jesus takes the shape of a lamb. Yeah, yeah. Right? And so, um, we're dealing in these pictures. And so knowing that this is an, a work of apocalypse should tell us that we should read we should read Revelation more like Tolkien or Lewis or Bunyan than a strict theological treatise. Now, gee, I'm gonna stop for a minute and oh, say what I do you know when I say Tolkien, Lewis, and Bunyan. Did I just lose you or are you following me with those? I'm following you with those. I oh, good for you. I'm yes, so proud. Yes, I know. But maybe not every viewer or listener, they're not watching us. Okay, that's fair. So, so Tolkien wrote Lord of the Rings is, you know, and The Hobbit and that kind of stuff. Uh, Lewis wrote some regular books, but he was very imaginative. The Great Divorce and... Um, oh, what's the, the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe? Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah, Reggie's uh, favorite. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> you laughed. Like, that tells me a lot. <laughs> yeah, because he's a nerd at heart. He is. Uh, and then Bunyan uh, writes Pilgrim's Progress. So these are, are I don't works. Know that one. Uh, that's an older one. I want to say 16th century off the top of my head. Yep. Uh, and so <laughs> you can verify that. All right. <laughs> well, Well, that's good to know. <laughs> I was saying, yep, never heard of it. That's what my yep was. But but, but um, in other words, instead of reading these mm-hmm. as straight prose or a telling of the future, we should be reading them in that sense. They, they are, they're metaphor. They're stories meant to convey truth. This is what Apocalypse does. This is what John is doing. And many inappropriately get their imagination set on revelation being about the end of the world. And that's all they can imagine that mm-hmm. it is. 
Yeah. And it's the end times, and you got to know about the end times. And yet, the only time Jesus really directly talked about the end times is he said, don't try to figure out, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, the day exactly. or the hour. Now, he wasn't even talking about directly the end of the world there. Yeah. But I think that's his point is I'm not telling you these things so that you can start speculating about yeah. when what's going to happen and pick up your newspaper. And it gets crazy because people start to read Revelation with these imaginations formed that it's got to be about the end of the world. And that's all it can be about. And then they'll take a concept like the Antichrist, which is pro tip, G, not even in the book of Revelation. Pro tip. I feel smarter. <laughs> not The Antichrist <laughs> wow. is not even in the book of Revelation. That's great. It comes from that. John's letters. But I bet you if you mm-hmm. ask people, true or false, mm-hmm. is, you know, most people is the Antichrist a main figure in the revelation, they would say, yes, of course it is. It's not there. See, okay. Can I pause you for two seconds? And this, I mean, I'm not trying to take us down here, but I would say the frustrating thing about the Bible is why make it so difficult to understand something like, I, I don't understand. Why can it not just be like, this is what it is. This, I mean, I try not to say why a lot when I'm doing that, but I'm just like, that is the frustrating part because, you know, there's so many people led astray, good-hearted people trying to just read Revelation and get it wrong because you don't know all these things. So I'm just like, "Ah, I don't know. It's frustrating. All the things you're breaking down are frustrating because I would never know this by myself. Um, And I I know a lot of the Bible's not meant to just do it on your own and get it straight away, but... In my mind, questions I'm going to ask God when I meet him, uh, why? Why did it have to be, you know, this difficult? Maybe yes. it's like, that's not difficult. Maybe I want to push you to go deeper. Yes. But Oh, so good, G. I love that. Okay, let's explore that for a minute. Here's the thing. You have an imagination mm-hmm. that is trained to be an individualist. Mm, and yes. an individualist assumes... An American, a hyper-individualist. So you have been trained to assume that you can conquer anything set before you by yourself and should be able to, especially the Bible. That the Bible is a document designed for you personally, individual, to read it, digest it in daily devotional bites, Get a daily affirmation or, you know, word of encouragement, understand it easily and move on. That's what the Bible is. But that is a fantasy that we have invented. That is not what the Bible says about itself. Oh, arrow <laughs> to my heart. <laughs> right? We all do it. We, yeah. we all do that. But the, the Bible uh, directs towards creating a community. That's what the New Testament is all about, how to create a Jesus community. So that right there is different. Then the Bible says, you got to be a workman. You got to study. You got to put in work. You got to wrestle with this. You got to ask, seek, knock. You got to keep working. It says that. That's different from how we view it. Then it says, you know, I've given you apostles and teachers and prophets and ministers to help the community understand this. 
But we get frustrated when like, well, but I should be able to understand it on my own. But the scripture points to a community being created that will have people that help us along the way. But that's only part of it. That becomes even more necessary because when was this written? A long, long time ago. A long, long time ago. <laughs> yes. 2,000 years ago in the yes. case of Revelation, right? Did it make sense to the original audience? I think it did. I would think so. Did did the metaphor... In fact, there are several times in Revelation where it will say, you know, the good reader can figure this out. Let the reader be... You know, be aware of these sorts of things like that kind of language. Like, this is stuff you can know and understand. Again, even they had to wrestle with it. But granted, Revelation was a, a difficult form of literature because shortly after it's written, that culture basically dies in many respects. The Jewish culture goes through great upheaval. Jerusalem is destroyed. Uh, the You had in the next century the Bar Kokhba re rebellion. The Jewish religion changes radically. The culture changes radically. They're, they spread around the, the, the known world of the time. They're syncretized in many respects. So already by the second and third century, they're having trouble reading Revelation. Because it, it was not a, a form of literature that had survived. And so Revelation is particularly vulnerable to misreading it. But to answer your question, how would, say, John writing in the first century write a book directing people in the first century with wisdom of how to live as dissidents in the midst of this empire around them? How would he do that and use language that was easily understandable to you and I and use phrases and situations and metaphors? And it's John, figure it out. That's what I'm going to tell John. No. <laughs> figure it out, John. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. It, you, you know what it's like, G, and I don't mean this directed at you because mm -hmm. this is all of us. It is like Americans who go to France or something and then get mad at people in stores because they're not speaking English. Yeah, like, yeah. why are they not speaking English? They know I speak English because I'm in France. That's why they're not speaking English. Yeah. But that's what we do. We go to the Bible. It's like, why isn't this understandable for me? Well, mm -hmm. you know, when I'm in France, I got to do the work of understanding people when they speak French. Yeah. And, and it's the same with the Bible. Does that make sense? It definitely makes sense. Still frustrated, but it makes still, sense. God is still getting confronted one day. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. With an angry Gianna. Okay. Don't be angry. I'm just very curious. Like, I'm sure many people feel this way. Like, God could have done things differently, right? <laughs> but uh, could have. But I you know, that's dangerous ground too, right? Because uh, yes, and I, I obviously. Don't think he should right. have. I think he did everything perfectly. God did a lot of things that yeah. I wouldn't do, like die on the cross for right? someone else, you know, so. A few things I wouldn't do. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, yeah. no, no. I just, you know, I like to give the, um, well, and I like 
I actually want to ask you this. Like when people say devil's advocate, is that wrong? I like to be the devil's advocate. I feel like that's wrong when you really think about it. And so I didn't want to say it, but I always like to play both sides of my brain. That's who I am. Like even when I'm for something, I like to like play the other side, see the different things. And so I could imagine people reading this would be like, you know, it's frustrating to start this. This is why I didn't want to based off everything you're telling me, Michael, today. Like there's this type of literature and then there's this and then learn this definition and this and this. And it's like, well, and it's I might as well not start. <laughs> no, it's confusing, right? Mm-hmm. And and you start to go to heck with it. Who yeah. who can I trust? What why even bother? And I get that. And that's part of, I think, the beauty, though, of having a community that you can trust, having mm-hmm. teachers whose lives you know. Jesus says that in Matthew yeah. 7. You should know a teacher by their fruit. You want to be able to see, do they do their best to live out the new creation? I'm not going to have my biggest influence be some podcaster that I don't know. Yeah. So, you know, if I'm going based off of that, the amount of times you bring up Sasquatch makes me question whether or not I should really listen to uh, some of your teachings. No, I'm joking. <laughs> but see, you know me well enough yes. to know my sense yes. of humor mm-hmm. to know that I have a totally nerdy sense of humor and I find that greatly humorous. Yes, yes. So that's the thing. And I'm not saying don't listen to podcasts. Obviously, we're not saying that because you can't know everybody that's we're a podcast. Yeah. But, you know, we should not be a bigger spiritual influence in your life than the spiritual community of which you're a part. Now you may hear some things that are different than what you hear. And that's something you can take back to the people in your community or to your ministers or whatever and say, Hey, let's wrestle with this together. Is this correct? But I think it's dangerous ground to go. I'm not going to listen to my spiritual community anymore. The one that's cared Mm -hmm. for me and loved me and taken care of me because I heard something over here. That makes sense. And I'm not saying whatever your spiritual community says goes either. There's there's a balance there, but we, we have to be careful uh, because uh, imagination is, is a fragile thing. And so we, we want to train it in the right direction. Now, one of the things with imagination, and, and we're not going to get through all my notes today, and that's great. Love it. <laughs> That means we're having good conversation. But I think um, the thing with imagination is when we approach the New Testament, like, well, let, let me ask you this way, G. Is your general impression of the Roman Empire positive or negative? In other words, do you see them as good guys or bad guys? Definitely the evil ones. Definitely the bad guys, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The reason for that is our imaginations there have been shaped by the New Testament. Mm-hmm. We've been shaped by followers of Jesus who see things from God's perspective. And I'm not saying that's wrong at all. It's not at all what I'm saying. However, that's a skewed interpretation and imagination. It is not one that was shared by most of the people living under the Roman Empire at the Mm -hmm. time. The Roman Empire was the greatest nation state that had ever existed. Mm -hmm. And not just the most powerful, although it was the most powerful. And that was important because 
it provided all of these other things, which we'll talk about down the road. And they had these myths that people had bought into that had supported this idea. But Rome, the people loved Rome. The people, um, my dog just opened the door to my office on her own, believe it or not. You're doomed. Yes. I Like, because my windows in my office are the only ones she can see out of to see who came in. And my wife just pulled up in her car. And so my dog decided <laughs> to open the door. Think of the day I've had supernatural flies. Right? I was going to mention that. dogs who are opening my office doors uh, on their own. So <laughs> that is that is the day I am having. But back to the Roman Empire. Uh, the people living in the Roman Empire, many of them, especially in Asia Minor, where Revelation is written to, they weren't forced to show their allegiance to Rome, to vie for the affections of the emperor, to even worship them as a divine being. They wanted to. They were grateful for Rome. Rome brought them peace and prosperity. And so we... When we view Rome, we tend to view like, oh, it was easy because it was evil. That was not the temptation. For a lot of Christians, it was like, man, I'm really happy to live in Rome. And, you know, and I think we can identify with that. I was going to say. (laughs) Right? I didn't want to say, but I feel like I could say. Say it, G. (laughs) Say it, G. Yeah. I mean, I really love living in America. I definitely do. But I know... That might not be the perspective from around the entire world, uh, other citizens in other countries. Well, that's another good point. Yes, there there were definitely But, but there's also some that want to live here because America is oh, the greatest nation in the world. So, yes, I, I'm so seeing a lot of similarities people, is what I'm saying. So many people wanted to come to Rome and live in Rome. But there were other places around the world that were had their necks under the Roman boot, and they had a very different mm-hmm. perspective. But the yeah. people living in Rome were like, this is this is a yeah. good nation. We are good people. This is a force for good. We have established the the golden age, the long-awaited, you know, <laughs> the good times are are here now. And and that is the way that they viewed things, right? And so uh for There's never a point in scripture where it says, hey, Rome is irretrievably evil and she's got to be brought down. You should hate it. Leave Rome. That's not it. In fact, Paul says in in Romans 13, when he's writing Christians in Rome, in the capital city, he says, you know, be subject to the ruling authorities, respect them. Our role is to love other people, not to try to bring the kingdom through old creation, violent type means. We're not rebelling. We're not doing those sorts of things. But at the same time, don't fall in love with Rome. You can be grateful for it. You can be appreciative for the people around you. You can live there, but don't fall in love with it. You have to be people living with a different imagination. And so uh, Scott McKnight talks about this in his book on on Revelation for the rest of us. And he says, uh, to slightly paraphrase, that Revelation symbolically transforms the world into a battlefield in which the forces of the dragon 
are arrayed against the forces of the Lamb. And that's what's changing people's minds. The thing that they thought was a really great country that they got to live in, John says, that's actually the forces of the dragon. The economy that they thought was amazing and that they were so blessed by God to prosper in, John says, yeah, um, that's actually the dragon's economy. And there's a lot of bodies strewn behind that dragon in order for you to have all your great wealth and resources and, you know, the, the greatest nation who ever lived, that kind of stuff. So he's retraining their idea. And, and in, and in incredible ways, I do want to read one passage before we end here, G let's, let's look at um, revelation one. And we'll try to do this quickly. But verse 12, let me just read verse 12. It says, I turned around to see a voice, to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. So, okay, we see that passage. That hopefully you look at at that and you go, wow, that's very symbolic language. I maybe don't understand all the symbols, but what, how imaginative it gives us this picture, and that's really the way Revelation is. It's a John will say, I see, I heard. He's trying to describe things. He utilizes the language of prophets who came before and saw similar things. We'll talk more about that later, but Revelation is really a book that would have been performed. It's like a symphony. And when you hear a symphony, have you ever been to a symphony, Gianna? Mm -hmm. When you went to the symphony, did you sit there and try to listen? What are the trumpets doing? What is what is that instrument? And try to listen to them separately and break it down. And or do you sit back and you just let it all kind of wash over you as an experience? Right. Well, it's the latter, right? You don't. You don't mostly, sit, I'm mostly. a psycho. No, I'm just kidding. Do you no, really? I do like to pick them out, but, um, you know, sometimes in them there, it's a crescendo, so it's building up. So like each section has their own little right, time right, right. and then they, when they blend together, yes, then I let it wash over yes. me and things like that. Overall, yes. that's what the symphony mm-hmm. is, right? And there's a Correct. time and place to break it down, but the yeah. overall experience is this, this impact that it has. Yeah. And so when we read a passage like this, revelation is starting with, let me show you who we're talking about here, who Jesus is. And it uses language from Isaiah 118, Daniel 7, 9 and 10, Daniel 10, 6, and there's a few other places, Ezekiel and some things like that. But John is giving us this picture, this imaginative picture of 
a glorious and powerful figure. And he's using Old Testament language. And when we put it all together, we see this shining, flashing, brilliant, guard your eyes, bigger than life, person who holds seven. Seven was a symbol of completeness. Uh, Ancient rulers often used imagery like holding seven stars in their hands to say, I have all the power. I control the universe. But here the stars and the lampstands are churches. And so Jesus is the real power in the world, but he's exercising his power through the churches. And so it's this, this figure as we start out, like here's this powerful, glorious, you know, blinding figure. Keep that in mind because then he's going to kind of craft and reshape that figure. But underneath it all, even as we get to the lamb and images like that, this is who we're dealing with. But if we start to pull away details, like I've I've had people that are good people that mean well, but they've gone to this passage and go, oh, look, it says that the hair on his head was like wool and his feet were like bronze. Well, bronze is a dark color. Wool is woolly hair. What that means is More that texture. Mm-hmm. Jesus is African. Yes. Jesus is a black African. Now look, no one would be more excited than I was if there was a verse <laughs> that pointed directly and made it clear that Jesus was dark skinned because I think there's been so much mm-hmm. damage done historically with the mythology that, you know, in the 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th century and on that Jesus was a white man and white skin was superior and some of that stuff. It was weaponized, right? So if yeah. there was a verse showing clearly that Jesus was dark skin, which we believe he was, that'd be brilliant. But mm-hmm. that's not what yeah. is going on in that this passage. That, that would be strange to suddenly, in the midst of this imaginative yeah. picture, to go, oh, and by the way, <laughs> let me give you a literal depiction of the texture of Jesus' hair and the color of his skin. No, what is well, and you see this in the in the corresponding passages in Isaiah and Daniel. Wool, wool was used to depict color, whiteness, and so it's gleaming, it's bright. Blonde, the bronze is glowing like it came out of a furnace. It's it's shiny. It's mm-hmm. his eyes are blazing like fire. His voice is this powerful voice of the ancient of days, rushing waters. He's got the power of the seven stars in his hand. So we sit back and let it all kind of wash over us as one big imaginative picture. This is the glorious Christ, right? And so that's, uh, again, a way to read Revelation. It, it retrains our imagination. And John is going to keep doing that. And he'll start moving our imagination one way. And then he'll go, okay, now let me shift in what you, where you thought I was going. It's, Let's it's confuse actually... you again and again. <laughs> in a way, yes, because that, that makes us pay attention. Mm-hmm. And, it, yeah. and it teaches us how to have imagination. Again, uh, McKnight says that, uh, I love this. He says, imagination empowers dissidents to deconstruct the status quo. It it teaches us in a way that simple prose could not. 
it, it helps us to imagine something different and change the world in a way, you know, that just straight writing never could. And, and that's the brilliance of revelation. In fact, McKnight, uh, I love the way he puts this. He proposes reading revelation as a story of team lamb versus team dragon. <laughs> and you have this, this great showdown between the, the two, the dissidents versus the power of empire. And so the final statement here I'll make, G, is imagination requires examining the myths that nations have. We're not going to get to that today. Maybe next time we'll jump into the myths of empire that, that this imagination is taking on. But I think that's enough for today, don't you? I agree. Yeah. And leave people on a cliffhanger. Well, that's what good stories do, right? <laughs> and you're the author here. No, 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 no. <laughs> Not a revelation. I'm saying John is the author, a cliffhanger that we will go into oh. myths next. <laughs> okay. All right. You didn't get my um, metaphor, but it's okay. Yeah, gee, why didn't you make it easier for me to understand? <laughs> You know, I mean, I come from the same cloth as Jesus, so just kidding. We'll oh, stop wow. there because I can just start going on yeah, a rampage. we really should now at this point. <laughs> oh, well, good stuff today. Um, you know, we'll continue to have conversations like this that, like Michael mentioned, we're not going to hit every single verse. Um, we'll just have communication about uh, the different topics and it's going to be fun. So just hang with us through it all. And if you're interested in sending us any notes or any thoughts you have, send it our way. We'd love to have you guys in the conversation and be a part of what we're doing as a community here at the Icon Podcast. All you have to do is send us an email to iconpodcast at gmail.com. And we love everyone on Facebook. You guys love to talk to us there. So throw a comment on any of our posts. We'll get back to you. All right. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch you guys next time.